hello. My name is Xenia Makovsky, and I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. Here with me today is Scott Hancock, an associate professor of history and Africana studies at Gettysburg College. Professor Hancock, thank you so much for joining me today. Not my privilege, happy to do it. I wanna start off with just making sure we're all on the same page. So as all three of you touched on on our panel discussion two weeks ago, part of the problem with critical race theory in the current cultural wars and legislation is that there are so many misunderstandings of what CRT is and is not. So just to clarify for everybody, could you please explain what your understanding of what critical race theory is? I would define critical race theory as a analytical tool drawn from a variety of different disciplines and fields like the legal field, history, anthropology, sociology, political science, as a tool to analyze how race has been used to create and maintain advantage for one racial group, primarily white Americans, and disadvantage other racial groups. And it's, if you talk to different critical race theorists, I'm sure you're going to get somewhat different definitions, but that's just a really quick and simple definition I use, because I think it's one that is accessible to people. You don't have to be a scholar to get at it. Uh, some people would probably say that it's oversimplified, and we can certainly talk about the, the nuances and complexities, but that's that's my my initial starting point for defining it. I know you talked about in the panel a little bit, but would you be able to hit on the points that you mentioned that critical race theory is not? Yeah. So, so as we know, a lot of the legislation in different states often doesn't use the term critical race theory, but it's kind of we all know that's what they're talking about. It's kind of like how the U.S. Constitution doesn't use the word slavery, but we know there are certain passages where everybody knew that at the time that's what they were talking about when they said all other persons. So some of the legislation says that critical race theory, well, it doesn't say critical race theory. It prevents the teaching of anything that is going to assume that somebody is inherently racist because of their what race they are, skin color. Critical race theory doesn't teach that anybody is inherently racist. So that use of the word inherent, I think, is very intentional because it's something that is going to cause a strong negative reaction among most people, most Americans in particular. But it's a distortion, as I said, I think an intentional distortion of what critical race theory teaches. That's probably, for me, that's the most egregious example of what it's not. There are, I have to look at some of the, the specifics of legislation, but a lot of it flows back to that. There are these assumptions that critical race theory is going to make people feel bad about who they are, about their racial identity. That's not the point of critical race theory. It may have that effect for some people, but that's not what the point of critical race theory is. Mm. You made the comment that you have used CRT in your writings but you would not consider yourself really to be a critical race theorist. So can you explain a little bit what you mean by when you say you don't consider yourself a critical race theorist? Well, one, because as a historian, that's the, the method that I use is from the discipline of history and doing research. And so I find aspects of critical race theory to be useful tools and help me understand how certain Systems and processes have worked in American history, 
but I also view it with a critical eye, as do other you know, critical race theorists criticize each other all the time. So I'm doing what they do, where I use certain aspects of CRT, but I think about it critically. I think, well, is this useful? Is it well-grounded? Uh, what's the evidence to support it? The reason I would say I'm not a critical race theorist is because I would not consider myself to be well-versed enough in the depth and breadth of CRT, because there's a lot of it. There's thousands of articles and books uh, by CRT scholars. I've read a lot of them, but by no means the majority of them. So there are nuances and aspects of critical race theory among academics that I probably wouldn't be qualified to speak into. There's a lot that I think I am qualified to speak to. I've been interacting with it, reading it, for at least 25 years on different levels. But because I know some people who are, who would say, yes, they're critical race theorists. One of my colleagues is here. And when I talk to them, I realize their depth of understanding of all the ins and outs and nuances is much deeper than mine. So I'm not sure what the term for somebody like me would be a critical race theory dabbler, perhaps, you know, but I wouldn't say I'm a critical race theory scholar. You just highlighted that sometimes it can be a really useful tool. What are some of the dangers and negatives of you have to consider when you you yourself use CRT or when you're warning students about using it and producing their own scholarship? Okay, yeah. So I think there's two really distinct ways of doing that, uh, thinking about that. And one is just as, as, as a scholar. So if I have, uh, I'm right now I'm teaching a senior seminar with history majors and if they, if some of them are going to, and the senior seminar is on race and law and U.S. history. So if they're going to use CRT as a, a tool in their research, excuse me, what some of the things I would caution them on is, okay, so you're probably going to read some law review articles since CRT is birthed from the legal field. And some of the law review articles they may read are by CRT scholars. And that can be good and useful, but they should understand that there's a different process. There's a, they have a different method, does, and it's a good method, but there's also a different process of peer review. So many law review articles are produced by a graduate student committee, not written by, but evaluated by a graduate student committee. So say like the Harvard Law Review or Michigan Law Review. And that's the level of peer review. And that's, a, that's still a good level of peer review, but they don't necessarily send them out for blind review to other scholars in other fields. So as a historian, if you're using a law review article, which I've used law review articles before, that's good and can be important, but we have to understand that their process is different. And some law review articles are not as strong as others, which would be true in, in any discipline. But because it's a graduate student committee that is evaluating them, um, and this isn't a, not casting any aspersion on graduate students, but it's a, it's a different kind of process as opposed to like the Journal of American History or American Historical Review, where they send it out to blind peer review to historians. And it's not just internally within a committee. So that's one way from a kind of disciplinary perspective. The other way that I said they have to be careful, and this actually just came up this semester, I think it's what I referenced in the panel, is at the start of the semester, I told students if they want to use, re, do some reading in critical race theory, since the seminar is on race and law, that can be useful for them. 
one of the students asked, because a few of them are considering going into teaching, like in public schools, when they graduate, they asked, is this something they should be concerned about when they apply for jobs? Something I had not thought of before. And I think it's, it's sad and it's tragic that I have to tell them, yeah, that's probably something you should weigh. You could have an A-plus seminar paper, which would be unusual because I don't give out many A-pluses. But if you do, and say you have 100 footnotes, but if two of those footnotes cite somebody like Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the founders of CRT, it's possible that when you go apply for a job, if somebody does background research on you and they find two footnotes citing Kimberly Crenshaw, they might say, oh, this person is using CRT. We don't want them teaching in our school. I mean, I hope that wouldn't happen, but as we see in this political environment, this culture and political environment and racial environment, that's certainly a possibility. I think it's unfortunate that I have to tell these students, you might have to be careful about what kind of scholarship, legitimate scholarship that you use in your paper because of what it might mean for you on down the road. Yeah, and that's a a completely sad but valid point. So transitioning a little bit to talk about the current role and debate of CRT in America right now. So Kevin Wagner highlighted that CRT only became a controversial topic, at least that he was aware of, starting in 2019. What is your relationship with encountering CRT? And do you agree that 2019 was really the start of CRT's involvement in like United States current culture wars? So my relationship with countering CRT, I would say, began in grad school back in the 90s when I was in grad school. And one of my subfields was law and society. So being aware of critical race theory is important. And as a professor, I, when I teach Introduction to African-American Studies, I often have students read Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Gene Stefanczyk and Richard Delgado. And I emphasize to them, and I have ever before it became a big controversial public issue, that the, the point of me introducing them to that is not that they have to agree with every point of CRT. Just like, I mean, I hope your professors do at Dickinson, right? It's not about telling students this is what you need to think. It's about teaching students how to think or in, encouraging them, you know, enhancing their, their critical thinking skills. And CRT is a really good tool to do that. And because it's like an African, if you're going to take a course in African-American studies, particularly if you're going to be an African-American or Africana studies major minor, if you graduate and you don't know anything about CRT, then we're not doing our job, right? It's up to you as a student to what degree you think it's useful, to what degree you may use it, to what degree you're going to criticize, interact with it, but you should at least know what it is. And sadly, I think many of the people who are criticizing it today, sorry, I'm getting a little bit on a tangent, but I'll bring it back quickly. Most of the folks that I have talked to and read or listened to when they talk about CRT and they're criticizing it, it seems fairly clear they haven't read any critical race theory scholars. They have only read what other people have said about it, which as critical thinkers, we would never let students get away with that in a paper or a presentation if they were talking about a theory to only have read what others said about it. We would say, well, you need to read those theorists and then criticize them you know, or in whatever way you want. As far as whether it started in 2019, 
I don't, I, there's been some debate about when this started. Uh, Christopher Rufo, who I mentioned in the panel talk, gets a lot of credit or criticism for being the one who's kind of started political ball rolling. But there are others who have said it actually predates him by several months. So it may very well be 2019. But certainly, I think since the fall of 2020 during the presidential campaign is when it has moved from perhaps percolating in the public mind to sort of exploding uh, or reaching a boiling point in the public mind. And it's, it's surprisingly, in some ways, perhaps stayed at that boiling point, as we're seeing in the confirmation hearings in the Senate of uh, Justice Jackson in the last couple of days. Yesterday in Washington, we saw Senator Ted Cruz grill Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson on CRT and her role as a board member at the Georgetown Day School where he believes that CRT is being taught. My question for you is, what do we make of Senator Cruz's questioning? Does, does this reveal anything about weaponization of CRT or any conservative motives from American senators right now? Well, I'm sure I'm not saying anything many other commentators haven't observed in this. I don't ever want to just jump to the conclusion like what Senator Cruz is doing is simply for political purposes, because maybe there's there's some legitimacy in part of what he or others are saying. For example, back up a little bit, one of the criticisms is that as you know, CRT is being taught in public schools. A lot of CRT scholars and others have said CRT is not being taught in public schools. And they're right. But one, if, if I was arguing from the side of those who are criticizing CRT, I would say, well, maybe it's not being taught in schools, but a lot of teachers have graduated from colleges and universities where they have been introduced and perhaps influenced by CRT. So the question is, to what degree does that shape what they're teaching? That's a fair question. Even if they have been influenced by CRT, I wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad thing, but it's at least a fair question. So when we just automatically reject their arguments and say it's not being taught in schools, I think, well, you know, we we can be a bit more nuanced or understand where other folks may be coming from. So I want to do the same thing with people like Cruz or Blackburn, one of the other senators who is doing some of the questioning. But then when I actually listen to their questions and hear their questions, it's hard to give them the benefit of the doubt because it's, it seems that when Ted, Ted Cruz brings up a children's book, that to me seems like what he's doing is very cleverly tapping into a kind of visceral reaction where many folks will say, yeah, that's right. That's terrible. How can they support Judge Jackson support that. What does that mean about future rulings and how it might affect the education my kid's going to get? Because that's, that runs deep, right? When it, you're talking about our children and how their minds might be shaped and shaped in ways perhaps you don't agree with, that's going to generate a strong reaction. And I think Cruz is smart enough to know that. Cruz and uh, some of these others, I think, by their political opponents or folks in the general public who don't like them get dismissed as being stupid or being racist. Maybe he is racist. I want to be careful what I say because I don't want to prejudge somebody, but whether or not he's racist is another story, but certainly some of the ways he's using race plays into racist ideologies. But he's not stupid. 
He, he understands, I think, well what kind of response it will generate among a certain constituency, as do some of the other senators that are lobbying similar kinds of questions at Judge Jackson. Oh, one thing. So the Georgetown Day School. So I went there to talk to their students a few years ago about Underground Railroad. They've had me back a few times, the last couple of times on COVID. Last year, Ariella Gross, myself, and I, I can't remember the other historian, we did a Zoom uh, session with them for about an hour and a half. They asked me to talk to them just about a month ago via Zoom about critical race theory. And what was interesting is the students on the Zoom call and even some of the, the teachers there, they, didn't, they knew critical race theory from being in the news, but they didn't know what it was. So mm -hmm. I think if, as Cruz and others said that Judge Jackson and the Georgetown Day School are teaching critical race theory, they're doing a really lousy job. Those students who are very intelligent students, you know, really insightful, almost everything that I was talking about CRT was, was new to them. Wow. I'm just curious, what age were the students that you were talking to? What grade? They were, they're high school. So they're uh, maybe, I don't know if they're all seniors, but my guess is probably sophomore to seniors. Okay. Interesting. Senator Cruz might be trying to play into some of the ideology that you expressed that people feel like CRT is threatening their identity. And the yeah. title of our panel two weeks ago was who's afraid of critical race theory. Even though you might argue that they have a misunderstanding of what CRT is, what is driving their fear? Is, is their fear just from a misunderstanding of CRT or is there something deeper that's driving their fear? Yeah, that's a good question. And so it's, you're, you're getting outside my range of expertise because I'm a historian. So this is much more about what's going on currently, although I can use history as a lens to think about how similar things have happened in the past. And probably the broad and kind of easy answer is when the dominant group in America, which is white Americans, whenever their position of status, economic, legal, political, cultural power seems to be getting threatened, there has been a strong reaction against that. So in some ways, what we're seeing now, I think we've seen this cycle before many times in American history. So in many ways, it's not new. It's just what the way in which that's manifested, it's new. But there's also, again, not wanting to oversimplify or reduce things too much, be too reductive. There are ways in which I wonder if what we're seeing is a manifestation of a variety of different things kind of coming to a head. So for example, and this is, might seem like a tangent, I was reading an article in New York Times about a week ago on why truckers were behind this blockade in Canada and how mm -hmm. it spread to the U.S. And truckers are subjected to some of the most invasive procedures in terms of drug testing, things like that on a regular basis. So in some ways, one might think, well, so what's getting, be forcing them to get a vaccine? What's the big deal? They have all other kinds of surveillance. They're surveilled in their cabs as they're driving. Their eye movements are surveilled. Like I said, they have drug tests all the time. And, and what the author of this article was arguing, which made sense to me, is that it's a culmination of a variety of factors. That truckers, since the deregulation of the 1970s in the U.S., have been paid a less, less, a lot of them, it's minimum wage or less. If you take the total amount of hours, it's a dangerous job. They're not protected by unions since it's been deregulated. 
think it said in 2019, before the pandemic, they had a 91% turnover nationally. So the truckers used to be a job that was fairly well paid. And, you know, back in the 60s or 70s when I was a kid and you could work 40 to 50 hours a week and have time at home with your families. And now it's tremendously insecure, tremendously dangerous and very low paid. So, of course, they're going to get angry when there's one more thing piled on top of them because they're afraid of losing any kind of security in just their regular life because they're already on the edge. And so that's an analogy and all analogies break down at some point. But I wonder how much of that is true of many Americans, especially white Americans, where there's just a sense that things are on the edge and that there's just insecurity in a lot of different ways. And so smart politicians know if you've got people who are afraid of a variety of things, and now you can throw something that connects to race and racial identity and say, well, now they're coming for your kids and it's all these other things you said it's poisonous, insidious, then of course they're going to react because it's like, it's the one thing they can get a hold of. You can vote people in, in your local school board. You can write to your principal. You can complain to your teachers. So you feel like you got a little bit of control over this one segment of your life. That's important, your kids and your family and their education, because in so many other areas of your life, things seem like it's, it's much more precarious. And like I said, the heavy qualification is that is I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist, you know, so I'm, it's a bit of guesswork in there. But like I, I think historically, we can see some of these things have played out in this way before. Mm-hmm. And I know you teach at a private liberal arts college, but would you be able to speak to the current situation in Adams County uh, Public Schools, which is where Gettysburg College is located for listeners, in regards to CRT debate or angry school board meetings or protests or letters that have been circulating within the county? Yeah, well, unfortunately, so the one Black teacher in Gettysburg School District has kind of become a target for some, a few folks, hopefully not the majority, because there, she, she signed an online petition over a year ago that said she would teach American history in a responsible, reliable way, including histories of race, things like that. She wasn't going to shy away from that. That has been twisted into, oh, she's, she's supporting or teaching CRT, which is not what the petition said. So that's unfortunate. So I, I've had a student who student teaches uh, at a school district in Adams County tell me that a parent has complained that she is teaching, I can't remember if it's teaching CRT or 1619 project, something related to that. Uh, the principal told her and the principal made quite clear that he had no concerns and they were not going to respond to this parent as far as her student teaching goes. And she, I can't remember, she told me what she was teaching and it wasn't anything like CRT, not even remotely like CRT or anything like that. A group of teachers at a local high school that I won't name to protect them asked me to come talk to them uh, back in February about critical race theory and, and black history. And when I, I, I came to talk with them after they introduced themselves and I introduced myself and said, how can I assist? That was about 40 minutes of them just telling their stories. At first I thought, I, you know, I thought they wanted information from me, you know, my own arrogance. I thought, oh, I was going to come 
spout wisdom from the fount of academia and learned about five minutes in realized they weren't really that interested in hearing from me. They just needed somebody to talk to safely. And it was really heartbreaking because they said things like they were afraid. They were afraid to teach. They're getting criticism from all sides, the liberal and the conservative side, although I, I think it became clear mostly from the, the conservative anti-CRT side. But like one teacher said, I used to be brave in teaching and now I'm not. I'm just afraid of what I'm going to say. They're under a tremendous amount of pressure. And some other folks I know in another school district have said that their teachers are afraid of a new school board that got elected. They're afraid they're just going to do crazy stuff. So I think what this is my own anecdotal impression, although there's plenty of other anecdotal information from other sources around the country, is that many of our public school teachers are afraid. They're afraid to teach. I mean, that is not a positive learning environment. Fear on both sides, I think. Right. I have a few more questions before we wrap up. But where do you see this national debate regarding CRT going? So is it going to end anytime soon? Where, Where does the U.S. go from here after so much criticism and questioning of public school curriculum? I wish I could be more optimistic and I'm not necessarily pessimistic, but I, I don't have any strong faith that, Oh, this is all going to work itself out well in the end, that this will just kind of fade away. That is certainly possible. It's certainly possible that the group that's pushing this may go too far and people just get tired of it. They'll get tired of being afraid and start to realize that, what teachers have been saying about histories of slavery and race in America isn't threatening their children. It's not making their kids feel bad to be white or whatever, that the stories that Christopher Rufo's and others trot out are isolated incidents. It's not a pattern that characterizes most of our public education. So it's possible to realize that and they'll just get tired of it and things will kind of settle back down. But I think it's equally likely that what we will see is kind of what we saw for 150 years after the Civil War, for example, where the history of the Civil War was taught in ways where slavery and Black people were were a footnote, when that's what it was all about, where histories of race and racism will get reduced to, well, this was, this was a problem, something we should be aware of, but it's not really something that's a central part of the history, as are histories of freedom and liberty and rights. It's we have a complicated history in this country, and we need to teach all of it. My concern is, as many others, is in answer to your question how this will play out, uh, is the folks who want to keep that kind of stuff, a sidebar text in your textbook in high school, that that's what will win the day. And that ultimately the narrative will be that America was intended to be and always has been a shining light on the hill. And it's a fairly uncomplicated story. At the panel, and even now in this interview, we've talked about the plethora of academic writing that's on CRT. And it's not just one monolithic theory. There's so much nuance and depth to it. So in an era where we have politicians and activists and journalists who are cherry picking and selectively choosing their sources, like maybe we saw yesterday, um, with Senator Cruz and rapidly producing media that's being consumed. How do we encourage U.S. citizens to think critically, as you said in the panel, and not mischaracterize sources 
to actually follow sources completely and read them. There got to be creative ways to do that by people probably more creative than me. That one, it, it can't be just throwing facts at people. Right? And I think I might have said this on, on the panel. I think there are times when we just need to present facts, present the truth and say, well, that's just wrong. And here are the facts. And if it, it drives people further into their own biases, then that's their choice. But I think for the most part, we have to figure out ways to kind of come alongside people and figure out, okay, so where are they at? And why do they think this? Why are they responding this way? Like, for instance, when I mentioned that if we only respond to people by saying CRT is not being taught in public schools, I think that's, I mean, it's important to say that, but if we stop there, we're not going to change the, the direction this is going in any significant way that a better starting point might be, okay, why do you think CRT is being taught in a school and what's your concern? And, and to listen to that and say, okay, so you know, how can we go about addressing that? Like without making teachers afraid and recognize that there are, you know, for one of the examples I like to use George Washington. So it's, the narrative that George Washington was a reluctant slave owner is not historically accurate. Now, he was a committed slave owner, but if that's the only thing we say about him, and we don't also think about, he was also committed to these ideals of freedom and equality and liberty, not for everybody, but he, the ideals in general did mean something to him. You know, so then we give room for people who want American history to be taught in a way that's unthreatening. We give room for them to enter the conversation. And then perhaps hopefully kind of lead them to think through it with more nuance. And I get that there are folks, including myself, who sometimes are impatient and frustrated with that because it feels like it feels like you're kowtowing to the dominant group. Like, you know, why do we always have to be so patient? And, and maybe there's a time there are certainly times not to be. But I also think the reality is they got most of the power. So you know, how do you speak truth to power without making power feel like you're threatening them is the question that we have to keep wrestling with. And before we go, I just want to ask if there's anything else that you would like listeners to be aware of when it comes to the CRT debate. No, I guess it actually just goes back to the title of your panel, which is a great title. Yeah. My how I might start an article or something like that is we don't have to be afraid of CRT and then explain why, you know, we don't, we don't need to be Americans have always tried to think of themselves as brave. We're a brave people. So let's be brave and let's not be afraid of uh, these kinds of things and wrestle with it. That's a good thought to end on. So this concludes today's interview. If you are interested in hearing more about CRT then you can check out the Clark Forum's website and our YouTube page, where there is a recording of the Who's Afraid of Critical Race Theory panel from March 9th. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Hancock. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Xenia. Same thing here.